Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a study in the book of Ecclesiastes called Unsatisfied, The Search for Meaning. We're learning that chasing after satisfaction apart from God will leave us empty. Thanks for joining us. I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness. I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, what is the value of all of my wisdom? The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. And so I came to hate life. And I came to hate all of my hard work here on earth. For, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And, and, and who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained. And so I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work. Well, what do people get in this life for all their hard work? And anxiety. The, the days of their labor are filled with, with pain and with grief. And even at night, their minds cannot rest. satisfaction in work. Then I realized that all these pleasures are from the hand of God. For, for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. Sam. Hey, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, which we just heard from. And uh, if you're getting used to Ecclesiastes, it's in the middle of the Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is the general uh, area there. If you're using a black Bible there in the seat rack, it's on page 462. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26 today in chapter 2. And while you're turning there, if you haven't been with us, we, we're in this series called Satisfied or Unsatisfied. Uh, a study in the book of Ecclesiastes for these 13 weeks. This is the third week. And so I uh, want to just talk to you today. I, I entitled this message, Without Him, uh, because it uh, comes from verse 25, where we actually see those two words used. We'll come to that in a little bit. But the thing I want you to see, if you haven't already been with us, is that we're looking at this book because Ecclesiastes, if you're following along, is about the search for meaning and satisfaction. In the Bible, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature that's about the search for meaning and satisfaction. It's actually one man's search, a very diligent, thorough search to say, hey, what's, what's really the whole purpose of life here? Like, what do I give myself to? What's going to really pay off? So as he talks about this, he's making his way through. And again, we've been seeing, last week we saw, he says, what about pleasure? What if I just became a full-time pleasure seeker? And would that do it? Is that what I've been made for? And so uh, this week, we're going to see that he actually comes back to something he looked at in chapter one. If you're following along, uh, here's what I hope you see this morning is that Solomon looks again to see what he may have missed. 
Solomon looks again to see what he may have missed. How do I know this? Because in chapter one, he already talked about how he looked at earthly wisdom and work for fulfillment. And now he's going to say again, now I'm going to relook at wisdom and work again to see maybe I missed something. I'm going to look again. See, maybe I didn't give it a thorough enough look. In fact, literally, when he says in verse 12, you know, that he says, um, then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom. That can literally be translated, I consider things from another viewpoint. I just came at it from another angle this time. So I want you to see that again, these subjects actually relate to us because I don't know about you, but especially as a guy, I find it very tempting not to find my identity, my meaning in work. Uh, sometimes earthly wisdom, I, I I sometimes prided myself on people saying, wow, he seems really wise for his age. You you ever struggle with any of these things? So Solomon says, I'm going to just check that out. I'm going to look to see. Maybe that's the whole thing to go after in life and see what meaning's about. Now, at the beginning of this message, before we look at what he actually says, there's a story that I heard over 30 years ago that I I absolutely want to share with you. Is it okay if I share this with you? It's about a guy uh, named... uh, Louis Agassiz. I think we've got a picture of him that we can put up here on the screen. Louis Agassiz was a professor at Harvard University. And uh, again, during Civil War, this story happened that I want to tell you about. He had a student come to him. And here's how this encounter went. And I specifically am sharing this story because it has this idea of looking, looking again, looking closely. The student writes, I entered the laboratory of Professor Agassiz and told him that I had enrolled my name in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions, including whether I wished to study any special branch. To the latter, I replied that while I wished to be well-grounded in all departments of zoology, I purposed to devote myself especially to insects. When do you wish to begin, he asked. Now, I replied. This seemed to please him, and with an energetic, very well. He reached from a shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol. Has anybody ever taken biology? Then you're going to be used to this picture here. Slowly, I drew forth that, uh, excuse me, he, he, pulled, uh, he pulled down uh, uh, a fish. And uh, he said, take this fish and look at it. We call it a hemulon. By and by, well, I will ask you what you've seen. Now, again, this is a dead fish that's in yellow alcohol for observation. And with that, he left me. I was conscious of a passing feeling of disappointment for gazing at a fish did not commend itself to be a student of insects. In 10 minutes, I had seen all that I could could be seen in that fish and started in search of the professor who had, however, left the museum. And when I returned, my specimen was now dry all over. I dashed the fluid over the fish as if to resuscitate it from a fainting fit and looked with anxiety for a return of a normal sloppy appearance. This little excitement over, nothing was to be done now but to return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour, the fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked at it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at a three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair at an early hour. (laughs) I concluded that lunch was necessary, so with infinite relief, the fish was carefully replaced in the jar, and for an hour, I was free. 
On my return, I learned that Professor Agassiz had been at the museum, but had gone and would not return now for several hours. Slowly, I drew forth that hideous fish, and with a feeling of desperation again, looked at it. I was not allowed to use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited by Dr. Agassiz. So my two hands, my two eyes, and the fish seemed a most limited field. I pushed my fingers down its throat to see how sharp its teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then, the professor returned. That is right, said he. A pencil is one of the best eyes. I'm glad to notice, too, that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. With these encouraging words, he added, well, what is it like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of parts whose names were still unknown to me, the fringed gill arches, the pores of the head, fleshly lips, and lidless eyes, the lateral line, and the forked tail, the compressed and arched body. When I had finished, he waited as if expecting more, and then with an air of disappointment said, you have not looked very carefully. Why, he continued more earnestly, you haven't seen one of the most conspicuous features of the animal, which is plainly before you, your eyes as the fish itself. Look again. Look again. And he left me to my misery. I was angry. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to the task with a will and discovered one new thing after another until I saw how just the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly, and then towards its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. That is next best, said he earnestly, but I won't hear you now. Put away your fish and go home. Perhaps you will be ready with a better answer in the morning. I will examine you before you look at the fish. This was disconcerting. Not only must I think of my fish all night, studying without the object before me what this unknown but most visible feature might be, but also without reviewing my new discoveries, I must give an exact account of them the next day. I had a bad memory, so I walked home in a distracted state. The next morning, the cordial greeting from the professor was reassuring. Here was a man who seemed to be quite as anxious as I that I should see for myself what he saw. Do you perhaps mean, I asked, that the fish has symmetrical sides with paired organs? His thoroughly pleased, of course, of course, repaid the wakeful hours of the previous night. After he had discoursed most happily and enthusiastically, as he always did, upon the importance of this point, I ventured to ask what I should do next. Oh, look at your fish, he said, and left me again to my own devices. In a little more than an hour, he returned and heard my new catalog of discoveries. That is good. That is good, he repeated. But that is not all. Go on. And so for three long days, he placed the fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Look, 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 was his repeated injunction. This was the best lesson I ever had a lesson whose influence was extended to the details of every subsequent study I took, a legacy the professor has left to me, as he left to many others, of inestimable value, which we could not buy and with which we cannot part. I bring this up because we said in the early uh, moments of this series that in chapter 12, Solomon writes this as a teacher to goad us, 
to stick us in ways that are uncomfortable so that he could prod us on, push us to look more carefully, to think more carefully about life than we might at first glance. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I draw quick conclusions to the things I see in this world. I don't always look carefully, but Solomon refused to do that. He felt himself prompted and pushed on to do a more thorough search. So now he comes back to earthly wisdom and work to say, is it possible that I missed something there? So if you're following along, here's what I want to ask you to do uh, is, is just walk through this with me. So Overall, in these first few verses, what I want you to see is that he asked, if you're following, what's the lasting value of our wisdom and work? In a way, he's asking, what's the lasting value of our wisdom and work? You know, let's just say that I got the best education. I became super smart. I learned how to be wise in all kinds of areas of earthly wisdom. Would that pay off? Would that ultimately bring the satisfying, lasting meaning in my life? What's the lasting value of that? The question he asked in the first chapter is, what do I gain by all this effort, all this energy expended in this direction? So he's asking that. Now, here's what he says. So I compared the wise person to the foolish person. I I looked back at wisdom again and folly. And here's what I noticed, if you're following along. Well, better to be wise than foolish, death levels and cancels. While better to be wise than foolish, he says death levels and cancels. So he walks through this and he says, okay, I did notice this, that if I had to be either wise or foolish, it would be better to be wise because it's the difference between light and darkness. It's the difference between walking around and having some idea of what's going on and having no idea of what's going on. In a way, he says the wise person has eyes in their head so they can at least navigate through this world better than someone who's foolish and is just throwing their life away. Obviously, this is in the context of pleasure. That if a person decides to just throw all wisdom to the wind and live for pleasure, they're going to ultimately probably pay a higher price in the long run than someone who at least is trying to be wise, you know, look both ways before you cross the street, that kind of thing. So after he says that, though, he says, but here's what I discovered is that the same fate is going to come to the wisest person and the absolute most foolish person. So what in the world is that about? And it just just makes them quieted. Someone has said that death is the great equalizer and the great eraser. In many ways, what he goes on to say, if you're following along, is that if you look at earthly wisdom as the thing that you most go after in life to give you meaning, then notice this, the wise and foolish both die and neither are long remembered. The wise and foolish people, both of them, both die, neither are long remembered. I was uh, thinking about this, uh, Alexander the Great at the height of his fame, when he was conquering the world, had a friend named Diogenes, who was a philosopher. And uh, his friend Diogenes was standing among uh, the cemetery uh, there. Actually, I think it was the the battlefield that they had returned to. And he said, uh, Diogenes, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for the bones of your father, and I'm having a difficult time distinguishing them from the bones of the slaves. He says, look, you know, when you get down to it, bones are bones. People are all made the same way. It doesn't matter how wise you're thought of in the eyes of the world if you die, because after that, you're not going to be long remembered anyway. 
And I don't know about you, but this is disillusioning. This is sobering. This basically says, now remind me why I get out of bed in the morning. Right? But Solomon's, he's goading us. He's pushing us saying, what do you do with that reality? What do you do with the fact that death is on your calendar? And he said, I actually looked at my own death and thought, oh my goodness. And, and what's even more disappointing than that is that I'm going to leave it, you know, to people that, you know, may not even do something with it. And he, he continues talking about this, but notice what he comes to in verse 17. I'll read it in the New International Version. He says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. If you're following along, he says, I hated life and all the things I worked so hard for. You're like, what's the point? He says, I hated life and all the things I worked so hard for. Would you read verse 17 with me in the gray box in the New Living Translation, please? So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. And we've talked about this word meaningless again. Steve talked about it again last week. It's the Hebrew word hevel. And it's this idea, even when you say it, it's like a breath. It's like a vapor. It's like a mist. It's not that everything is completely like, you can't draw some meaning out of it, but it's ultimately fleeting. It's not going to last. It's not lasting meaningless meaning. It's meaningless in that sense. And so he says, look, I just hated life. Can I just stop and say something? I am so glad God didn't edit Ecclesiastes out of the Bible. Some of you today would say, that sentence is my sentence. I hate life. I hate my life. I hate the way life is. And uh, he says, you know, my heart was despairing, says in verse 20. You ever been there? Even as a Christian, have you ever been there? It's real. And there is this sense of, oh my gosh. And, and it, just in case you're wondering, like, most of us want to like go, oh Solomon, please don't say that. That's not proper. I just want to remind you, Job cursed the day he was born. Jeremiah cursed the day he was born. Jesus actually said, if there's any other way for my life to go than drinking this cup of the crucifixion, I prefer it. There was this sense of, oh, there is a side of life. That you, just, you just, I hate this. And what he means not, is not necessarily that he hates all of life as much as he says, I, I find it disgusting, the state of things. The state of things here under the sun. Is anybody else going to turn a blind eye to the fact that there's injustice? That the fact that the death takes away people we care about? That the, these hard things. I hated life. Whew. And I am so thankful that that's in the Bible. Because it's honest. And there is a time that wisdom comes sometimes when we're most disillusioned with life. It's sometimes when we finally get to say, I hate this. Is there anything else? Is there anything else? And what I want you to see is that he says, okay, I'm, now I'm going to look at work. 
Remember, he says, I, I hated the things I worked for, but I'm going to look at work some more. So notice what he does. He looks at work in verses 18 through 23, and here's what he concludes if you're following along. He says, here's what I learned about work is that I must leave all, we must leave all we gain here after anxious striving. <laughs> here's the thing about work. I must leave all we gain here. We must leave all we gain here. And, and actually, even while we're working, there's anxious striving. There's grief, there's pain, there's anxiousness. In fact, literally, he says, is that um, even a person, their mind, never, their, their mind never sleeps. So there's this sense. Some of you have had this. You've, had, you've lost sleep sometimes over work. You've, you've actually said, bummer! It's just a lot of pain. It's just not fun. And there's this sense, and he says, that, that's what I learned about work, is that if you look at it, a lot of times, it's, it's, a, it's very involved. And also, besides, once you accomplish all that, if you, even if you get to the top of the heap, it, you have to leave it. And that, that idea of leaving it all really bothers him. He says, like, what do I gain? Like, I was looking forward to being able to enjoy that forever. But you don't get to enjoy it forever, is what he's saying, if you just look at life under the sun, and then he says, oh, here's another thing. You might leave it to a loser. And by the way, I'll just say this. Do you know, side note, you do know that Solomon's son was a loser. When he became king in the first month, he lost 10 twelfths of what Solomon had accomplished. 10 tribes out of 12 left Rehoboam because of his foolish answers. Woo, that's quieting. But he just says, this is sobering. This is sobering. You can't control that. What do you do with the fact you can't control that, he says. And he says, man, I realize if I'm putting all my energy into work, whew, that's a problem. You know, James Dobson talks about this where he says, you know, one night his daughter came home and said, hey, dad, we, we found a new game. We think you'll like it. It's called Monopoly. And so he says, they didn't know I'd been playing Monopoly for years. And so he says, we got the board going. And he said, you know, I got, you know, I won almost all the important properties. And he says, I was laughing. And, they was, yeah. and, and then he said, and then he said, they ran out of money and the game was over. It's time for them as they were going to bed. I started putting everything away and I realized I had to put it all back in the box. And he said, all my winnings, all that I'd accomplished in that game, all of it went back in the box. Years ago, John D. Rockefeller, who was one of the wealthiest men in the world, passed away. After he had passed away, his accountant was uh, visited by a very curious man who said, I'm just curious, how much did John D. Rockefeller leave? And the accountant looked at him and said, he left it all. See, this guy was looking for a number and the accountant understood, oh, even John Rockefeller left it all. Solomon goes, I'm one of the wealthiest people in the world. I have to leave it all. Hmm, what am I going to do with that? Hmm. And he says, I don't think that's the best place to place all my energy then. What do I do? And at verse 24 and 25, a turning point happens for the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes. Is anybody ready for something encouraging in the book of Ecclesiastes? <laughs> You're following along in the notes. Solomon looks again and sees what's also true. Solomon 
looks again and sees what's also true. So he says, you know, I went back and I looked at wisdom and work. And by the way, it won't be the last time he does that. He says, but this time I saw something I didn't see. And let's read verse 24 and 25 in that second gray box out loud and together. Would you read it with me? A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? And then verse 26 goes on and says, To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Now, let me just talk to you about what he looks again and sees that's also there. Because he doesn't deny, friends. Not once. Have you noticed? He doesn't deny death. He doesn't deny that some things in life are troubling. He's not one of these people that goes, Oh, no problem. No, he goes, that's troubling. But in the midst of the troubling things, there's something else that may be going on, and I don't want to miss it. And he looks again, and he says, in the midst of even these difficult realities, these hard realities, except I saw something that I'd missed before, the hand of God. I saw in the most ordinary moments of life that the hand of God gives us certain ways of enjoying life and finding meaning that I had missed. So if you're following along, notice he says, I I had missed God and I had missed finding satisfaction is from the hand of God. Finding satisfaction is from the hand of God. You've certainly seen this first, probably if you've ever studied the Bible very long, James 1, 17, maybe it's new for you, but here's what it says. Every good and perfect gift is from where friends above coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. This, we've been talking about this. Solomon's trying to say, if you just look at life under the sun, this is all there is, then you're going to notice some very disturbing realities. But if it's possible that there is life above the sun, life beyond the sun, then you may be able to begin to see that there's other things going on. And I saw, I saw the hand of God in the daily mercies, in the daily simple things. And I I had missed that before. And he said, oh man, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. And so notice this. This is where the title of the message comes from. Verse 25. Would you look at that second gray box again and just read that last line with me out loud. For without him... Who can eat and find enjoyment? Now, maybe you're here and you go, I can. I know a bunch of people that can. And what he's saying is probably they're pulling that off with God's help more than they realize. And so if you're following along, without him, we can't enjoy all he's given to us to enjoy. Without him, without God, we can't enjoy all he's given to us to enjoy. And so... The Bible says that he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. You know, he, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. There are, there are daily mercies that God gives to people, and even the capacity to enjoy that comes from him. Someone has said that verse 24, I believe it was Walter Kaiser, the Old Testament scholar, said that, When it says there is nothing better than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in your work, he said that that word better than is actually not in the Hebrew. It's just implied because it's been used in some of the other verses. And so he says, there is nothing 
in a man or woman to eat and drink and find enjoyment. We must go outside of ourselves if we're going to have that ability. Even the ability to find enjoyment and meaning, friends, has to come from outside you, he's saying. But do you know that? Or are you still saying, I can do it without him? I think I can. Well, at least you're being honest where you're at. Ecclesiastes was meant to Protestants say, be honest where you're at so you can at least figure out what you conclude about these things. So notice this, one more thing he says here in this section. uh, To all who please him, God gives, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. To all who please him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. What does it mean to please God? Most of us, the minute we hear this, we start getting nervous. We go, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I don't have a real good track record of pleasing God. So what does this mean? Well, Hebrews 11.6 really helps us see this in a clear light. Let's read it together. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You want to please God? Be humble enough to admit that he exists beyond life under the sun and that he will reward any person who earnestly seeks him. Here this passage says is that to every person that's humble enough to admit their need and the fact that they can't figure out life on their own without him, when they humbly look to him and look again to him, Now he turns around and gives people wisdom, knowledge, and joy. James 1.5 says this. I love this. This is true for any person. It says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. When you and I are humble enough to say, God, I believe you exist. And I believe that you will earnestly reward me if I seek you and want a relationship with you and do life with you rather than without you. That's a turning point. And that's a turning point that we see in Ecclesiastes. And so here, I want to just wrap it up by asking this question, you know, for, for you to consider, how will I walk through life? So are you going to walk through life hating life? Notice Solomon said that past tense, I hated life. Or are you going to come to the place where you actually can say, you know what, I'm enjoying life. It's not that life isn't hard and the realities I'm facing aren't true but I actually am, God's helping me actually enjoy my life no matter what chapter I'm in with his help. And by enjoy, I don't mean that I have, you know, hilarity, but that I'm able to enjoy and experience each moment as a gift from his hand. What does that look like? Well, here's the first question. On the satisfied without him path or the satisfied with him path? So what would you say you are today as you hear this message? As you walked into this room, would you say, you know what? Jeff, um, you know, you talked about that earlier. I think I'm one of those people that's on the satisfied without him path. I think I can actually find satisfaction without him. I know you're a pastor, so you're supposed to talk to us about God. I don't buy it. Okay. So play that all the way out. See how it goes. But be honest. Be honest when you try that if there's emptiness that keeps returning. And I would just humbly submit to you, would you be willing 
if that happens, to change your mind and say, I'm going to get off the satisfied without him plan and path, and I'm going to humbly turn to him in faith and dependence and reliance and humility and get on the satisfied with him path and see what he wants to give me. But where are you? Do you know where you are? Some of us have walked with God in the past. We've said, no, I, I'm already, I already got on the satisfied with him plan. It's just that there's days where I still live like I'm trying to be satisfied without him. What do I do then, Jeff? Well, I've got some thoughts on that too, because that, that's me. But here's this next question. Is when life seems pointless or disappointing, do I humbly look again? This is what I've been asking myself. Even this weekend, there was a time I got into a situation where I was so frustrated and I, I found myself staying frustrated for an hour or two and I thought, I don't think this is the best way to spend my time. But I had to ask myself, is, will I look again and see if there's anything else going on in this situation that I'm missing? And that was very helpful. And so I just want to ask you, if you find yourself in these limits, you find yourself in these situations, are you willing to be humble enough to look again, just like we saw that student was willing to look again, because as he was willing to look again, he saw things he missed before. And a person that's humble enough, if you want to please God, be humble enough to say, oh God, I look to you again. I look to you again. I've looked to you in the past. I look to you again. Please give me wisdom, knowledge, and joy that's better than earthly knowledge, better than earthly wisdom, and better than what the world calls happiness and joy. Show it to me, God. I, I look to you again. And so here's this last line of the notes. I'm going to give it to you so you can put away your notes. I know some of you like the orderliness of that, but then I'm going to still talk to you, okay? So am I learning to enjoy life with him in the ordinary? Am I learning to enjoy life with him in the ordinary? Do you notice this whole idea was, is that if you learn how to do life with God and see everything as from his hand, do you realize now that you can even eat differently? Do you realize that actually when you go to drink one of your favorite beverages, you can actually drink it with appreciation and gratitude and thankfulness? That when you go to your job, even if it's not your favorite job, you can actually go and find things to be thankful about even having a job. And you can do that kind of stuff differently. Ordinary things. What would that look like? And so um, I was thinking about this in my own life. This week, I started reading a book called uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary. Our, our new youth uh, high school leader actually suggested this book to me. So I got it and I started reading it. And uh, th this gal just writes some of the coolest things about how to learn to make the bed, brush teeth, eat leftovers, sit in traffic, drink tea, check email with God. Has anybody ever asked you about this before? Have you ever tried this? So uh, just a couple of things come to my mind. Uh, this week, I had the opportunity to be with a couple who's just been coming the last few months to our church. And uh, they came down one of the first Sundays to talk to me, and they said, uh, and the, the spouse, one of the spouses said, um, I got stage four cancer. They got real little kids and they were on a track. They had their plans. Things were just starting to click. They'd made all kinds of changes and work and jobs and finances and plans and everything. And now, boom, this came to the front door. 
And friends, that's, that, that's what Solomon says. When you really come to terms with the hard realities of this, wow, it's a whole different moment. And so I said to them, tell me about that. And they said, well, it's been super scary. But they said, we've noticed that when we've been going for chemo, that the waiting room there, we've met some unbelievable people. And then one of the spouses said, and to be totally honest, I know this sounds strange, but we have seen God's hand every step of the way. Scary, God's hand. There's a strange verse in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Hmm, what's that mean? Sorrowful and yet still seeing reasons to be thankful. Interesting, same time. Well, that's a dramatic thing. And some of you go, wow, Jeff, like I don't have stage four cancer. And as I pray with them, I don't necessarily know how that's going to go, but here's just a normal, ordinary moment. Uh, when I was uh, first uh, youth pastor years ago, Trish and I, we bought a little house uh, back in, uh, in Jerome area there, and, and Trish was teaching preschool in those days. And in that day, on my day off, we had just had um, a whole bunch of company that weekend where we used every last dish in our cabinet, okay? So in our little kitchen here, it's totally packed, all this stuff. And I found myself thinking, boy, I, I can't wait till Trish gets home and washes all those dishes. <laughs> and then across the ticker of my mind, the Lord said, you know, you could do those dishes. I remember thinking, I don't think that would be meaningful. <laughs> but the Lord just said, hey, come on. And I could tell he was inviting me into this experience. And so I put the soap suds in the thing and I started washing the first couple dishes. I'll just be totally honest. I remember thinking, drag city. I don't, this is a, ugh. Then the Lord said, there's another way. Would you like to do it with me? I mean, you can push through. You want to do it with me? Again, all this came, I knew he was speaking to me. And so I just started doing it with enthusiasm and singing and thanking God for the people that had used those dishes and thanking God that my wife washed the dishes so many times. I found that all this kinds of stuff came to mind. And I found that God was giving me wisdom, knowledge, and joy washing the dishes. You know, I still miss things. But when I miss things, like you, don't you want to look again? And say, God, teach me how he can do this ordinary moment that I often dread or often discount. Show me how to do it with you. Show me how to do it with you. Because that's the meaning of life, is to do it with you rather than without you. So take a moment right now. Is there something in front of you, a situation that's disillusioning you or that you're bored with or that you wish you didn't have to do? Would you be willing to just take a moment to think about what would it look like if you did it with him rather than without him?